Good morning. It's great to see all of you. Happy Labor Day weekend, everybody. I uh, hope you all have, have fun things planned or no things planned at all, actually, maybe, is what I hope for everyone here, except good rest. Um, I woke up this morning feeling very thankful for the day off tomorrow and also very thankful that Jesus does not go on vacation uh, for the promise that um, he is here with us, you know? And so it feels good to get to be the church uh, this morning and be together. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter, chapter 7. I believe a very uh, important and timely word for us, albeit uh, not an easy one. This is one of um, the trickier moments in the Gospels. We, of course, here at Trinity don't, don't choose our sermon text, so it's not like I woke up on Labor Day weekend and, or looked forward to Labor Day weekend and thought, you know what we should do? <laughs> we should preach on the Syrophoenician woman that Sunday. Um, but the good compilers of the lectionary thought that it would be um, a good thing for us to do, and maybe the Holy Spirit as well. So we're going to sit with this um, text, which I, I hope we will have a chance to unpack together and um, know that uh, I believe has already been true for me, that the Lord has something really important uh, to say. This is verse 24. We'll read these six verses and pray. From there, he, Jesus, set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, sir, better Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, for saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Spirit, Lord, we believe, we know, God, that you have gathered us here, Lord, from wherever we've come from, or that you, by your grace, have invited us into your house, close to you, to be together with one another, and have promised, Lord, that where we are together, one in, with one another, Lord, that your presence is there, that you're here with us. And so for all the reasons, Jesus, for which you have gathered us here, over those things we pray, Lord, all the stuff, God, that you can see that needs to be done in our hearts individually, in us collectively as a body, in our church, Lord. All those things we put in front of you, Jesus, and we ask you, God, now for grace to trust you, that even in moments of provocation and as you unsettle things, Lord, that you're at work, shifting things in us, changing us, and we ask you, God, that you would give us, Lord, the ears that we need to hear you, the hearts, Lord Jesus, that are soft enough, tender enough, God, to be open to you. For your peace, Jesus, we pray, and for the power of your spirit. It's in your name, Lord. We pray, amen. Amen. So this is uh, similar to a few weeks ago. Those of you who've been following along with us, you'll remember that we were in John 6 for a few weeks, and there was that moment where Jesus um, 
was with some of his disciples and a large crowd of his disciples, and he says this really provocative thing about um, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And we talked about how that moment was uh, rightly, understandably, and intentionally provocative. There's just no getting around it. That Jesus was like pushing buttons, and he was kind of doing it on purpose. Um, And I I believe that this is another one of those moments in which Jesus is sort of being intentionally or at least knowingly provocative, that he's pushing um, some buttons and not without purpose. It's because there's something that he intends to do, that Jesus is in effect opening up or creating a kind of space with an invitation to see how we will respond. And y'all, we may not like the fact that that happens or that God does that from time to time, but he does, in fact, do it from time to time. He is very good, he is very gracious, he's also like a refining fire. That is who he has promised to be, so that the goodness in us can be worked out and tested and tried from time to time. The faith that lives in us can be worked out, tried and tested from time to time, so that we have the opportunity to come to terms with what's actually going on inside of us, who we are. And I think this is one of those moments. I also think that Jesus intends to make an example out of this woman, that he is lifting her, elevating her up uh, with, for very good reason, with a purpose uh, in mind. This is one of those moments in the Bible that um, requires a little bit of context in order to make sense of what's happening, or at least we understand it better with some of that context in mind. So I want to do a little bit of like, let's look at the whole story. You'll remember last week, Brad preached and he talked about the verses that come just before this. Jesus was in Jewish Galilee whenever he was giving that teaching. It was the teaching about... um, You know, it's not what's on the outside, not the external stuff that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of the heart, what comes out of the inside that defiles. Jesus was going pretty hard after the Pharisees, after their attitude towards the law, some of their legalism, their commitment to the traditions of people, of humans. He takes it head on and he challenges all of that and he says, you know, it's not all this stuff. You've put your confidence in your own ability to control and regulate the things of God when actually it's what's on the inside. It's the stuff that comes out of you that defiles, that makes other people, including yourself, unclean. So he said that to Pharisees and people who thought like Pharisees all around him. Jesus leaves there and he goes into this Gentile region of Tyre. So he's challenged them and now he's going into this Gentile region. And he goes into a a Gentile house, uh, which I think is uh, pretty funny. I think it would have, I think we're meant to uh, receive it as, as odd that Jesus would sort of seek sanctuary. The text tells us he goes there and he hopes to be um, unseen. And so you're meant to take note of that. Jesus himself is seeking sanctuary in a Gentile home. So here's what I think, the, the bridge that I think is really important between the text that we had last week and the text in front of us this week, the connection between them. Oftentimes when we hear the verses last week about Jesus challenging what's our attention or our obsession really with stuff, with externals, with being uh, legalistic, with our commitment to traditions, we often assume that really what's happening there is that Jesus is um, being sort of anti-legalism. He's being uh, anti-religion. Jesus is um, pushing back against all those things because he's pro a laid-back spirituality. It's really that Jesus is challenging that so that he can make us, you know, a little more easygoing, a little more uh, open to the the things of God, not so serious-minded about the rules. And maybe, in part, 
I think there are all kinds of issues with our tendencies towards legalism, control, self-preservation, self-reliance. Bright did a brilliant job, I think, last week of laying that out. Those things are true, and Jesus did take issue with those things. But I don't think that that's all that's happening. In addition to Jesus trying to expose our temptation towards control and legalism and tradition, Jesus was also doing something else that's really, really important. Because we have to keep in mind that all of those laws that um, had to do with purity, had to do with external things like the food that you do or don't eat and who you do eat with and do not eat with, all of those things were in effect, they functioned to keep people separated from one another. Jews and Gentiles in particular. As a result of those laws, people could not actually share the same space with one another. They couldn't eat food together, couldn't have meals because they ate different things and they did it differently. And so it created this kind of functional separation or really segregation that kept people separated into tribes and factions. And as a result, then as now, when those tribes and factions exist, so do prejudice. So do our false beliefs about one another. Contempt, hate, we have different worldviews, we have different gods, we create different histories, different mythologies. And all of this grows up alongside one another. And that was happening in the ancient world. So when the New Testament is going after things like purity laws and what we eat and what we don't eat and declaring all foods clean and saying that we don't have to be circumcised. It wasn't just simply in an attempt to make us less religious or less traditional. Jesus is not so much primarily anti-tradition or anti-religion, while he may be those things. Jesus is primarily anti-tribalism and anti-prejudice, anti-separation and division because he's pro-communion, pro-unity, pro this one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Do you see what I'm saying? So it wasn't all just about giving us a kind of laid back approach to spirituality. We're gonna miss something really important if that's all we hear Jesus saying. It wasn't just so that I, Ashley, can be less obsessed about the rules. Actually, by most contemporary standards, Jesus himself would have been pretty religious. He was a very devout Jew, he prayed a lot, I'm here to tell you. He did a lot of what would have things that would have been considered to us religious. He was devout in his faith. So it wasn't about being anti those things. He was, however, anti all of the prejudice, separation, false worldviews, and division that came as a result. Our feelings of superiority over one another. And why? Because Jesus seems convinced that for the gospel to come, that when the gospel comes, what it does is it tears down, according to Ephesians, these dividing walls of hostility that have been erected between God and people so that Jesus can, by the power of the cross, reconcile people to God and to each other. So that the love of God can move through the whole world and bring healing, y'all. All of it is in the service of a redemptive kind of life, a redemptive healing that comes by the power of God's spirit through your faith. 
The world, the Bible tells us, sin and the patterns of this world have erected these patterns or structures, walls of division and hostility. That's what sin does. It creates separation between me and other people, between me and God, that's what it does. And over and over, the Bible says, particularly in Ephesians 2, that Jesus came not to just make us less religious, but to create in himself one new humanity out of the two tearing down the walls of division. Why? So that all might be saved. So that something powerfully redemptive that is the gospel could move into all of our corners, each of our tribes and factions, and heal all people, creating one new humanity, a new kind of person, a new kind of faith. That kind of faith, that new kind of person, I believe, is on is being made an example of in this woman. It's why her story follows immediately after Jesus' teaching on food and purity. It's because Jesus saw this new kind of human, new kind of faith at work in her. So the question for me and you is like, what did he see? What does that look like? And do we have it? Is that new kind of faith, that new humanity, me, am I that? So Jesus goes into this Gentile house in this Gentile region, and not surprisingly, he encounters then this Gentile woman who has clearly heard of him. Jesus, you know, and you feel bad for him. He wanted a break. He went there for a break, and he doesn't get a break. Um, And I think there's a kind of tongue-in-cheek thing here that Mark is doing. Mark is reminding us that, you know, this gospel, for all of our efforts to contain it, you just can't, even Jesus himself, You know, you just can't contain it. The gospel just is gonna go out and do what it does. And so this woman has heard of Jesus. She seeks him out. She actually goes and throws herself at his feet and tells him that she has a child who's possessed by a demon, an unclean spirit. And here's the thing. This would, of course, been extraordinarily taboo by the laws and norms of the day for a number of reasons. This woman was a Gentile, She was a she, gross. And she has a demon-possessed daughter, grosser. Gross, gross, and grosser. She's all of these things. And here she is, stretched out, grabbing hold of his feet. Um, Here's the thing. First thing that we notice about this woman is her desperation to get to Jesus in spite of all of the many myriad of things that would have told her it was not the thing to do. And she gets to a point where none of that matters. She's desperate enough to push herself to him in spite of all of the things that stand between them. And in that way, y'all, I envy. That's the first thing I envy about her is that she got to a place where she, she didn't, I mean, there was no other option. Jesus was the way to life, the way to healing, the way forward. And so that's where she goes. And when she gets there, something really surprising happens. Admittedly, unlike Jesus and out of character, what we would expect, as has happened many times before, Jesus has himself sought after people like this in the Gospels. He's gone and looked for the leper, gone and looked for the unclean person in order to touch them in healing. But at this point, something strange happens. Jesus adopts in himself the status quo response. He says out loud what any Pharisee around him would have been thinking including some of his disciples, no doubt. He says, this is verse 27, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. 
There's literally no way to make that not jarring and not provocative. For all of their interpretive efforts, I've yet to found a commentary that is successful at doing it. You just can't make it sound nice. And so that makes me think, well, why? If something is dissonant, any time in the Bible, and this isn't the only place where it happens, where there are these moments of dissonance, where Jesus says something that sounds very un-Jesus, we're supposed to go, why? It creates a space that opens up between us and him, that raises a question, it unsettles things. And I think there are a couple of reasons that Jesus is doing this. One of which is that I believe that he knew exactly the woman that was stood in front of him in some ways. He knew the faith that lived in her. At least he hoped he did. And so he extends a kind of test, an opportunity to see what will happen, not just for her benefit, but for all of our benefit. Jesus says out loud and it therefore exposes the secret things he knows people are thinking. And here's the thing, y'all. It sounds really gross when you say it out loud. Some of the contents of our heart, our default assumptions and the way that we think sound really bad when you say them out loud. And sometimes it's the only thing that gets our attention. We want to think that we don't think that way. We don't feel that way until it's exposed. Like Kenneth Bailey, who's an incredible Bible scholar, he lived in the Middle East for a long time. I want you to hear what he has to say about this moment with Jesus. He said, Jesus here gives concrete expression to the theology of his narrow-minded disciples who want the Canaanite woman dismissed. The verbalization is authentic to their attitudes and feelings, but shocking when put into words and thrown into the face of a desperate kneeling woman pleading for the sanity of her daughter. It is acutely embarrassing to hear and see one's deepest prejudices verbalized and demonstrated. As that happens, one is obliged to face those biases, often for the first time. So Jesus says the status quo thing out loud. So that's not the twist, and Jesus is always the twist. If you've been reading the Gospels any amount of time, you know, how the, you know how stories work, you know how the Bible works, you're waiting for a twist. Where is it? It's always Jesus, and in this moment, it's not Jesus. So where does the twist come? Ah, oh, it comes from her. It's the way she responds to Jesus that provides the twist in the story the really important moment. She says this, and this is from Matthew's gospel. He tells the same version of this story, and I would encourage you, if you get the chance, to read them side by side. But what she says, basically, in response to Jesus, is, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Yes, Lord. Or Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now here's the thing. It's very hard for us without the context and the backstory to understand the brilliance of what she's saying. I feel for her because it's the genius of it's kind of lost on us. But it wasn't lost on Jesus and it wasn't lost on Mark's readers or the people around her. It's a brilliant response. And Jesus knows it's a brilliant response. It is your like kind of mic drop moment, actually. And here's why because she has this choice to make. This Jesus that she has chosen to run toward in a moment of desperation, stepping away from the patterns of the world, from the temptations towards seeking out comfort in her own tribe and what was familiar to her, safety as she knew it, 
the faith she'd always had and held. Instead, she chooses to step out just like Brad was talking about last week, when you're like, I don't know, maybe. To go for it and look for the healing that she knows, that she believes that really only Jesus can provide for her. To lay it all out, trusting the goodness of Jesus. But it was a risk. And for a moment, it looks like it was the wrong thing to do. She had to have thought it. What on earth? And in that moment, there were like lifetimes of decisions that had to be made. Do I get angry? Do I get defensive? Do I choose to turn on my heels and go the opposite direction? Do I walk away from this? And instead, what happens, rather than getting angry or defensive or faithless, she becomes emboldened. I think exactly in the way that Jesus knew that she likely would. This faith in her compels her forward, so that she says instead, yes, Lord, and she turns his own logic in some ways against him or against the leading minds of his day, exposes it back right at them. And Jesus is impressed. In Matthew's version of the story, he says, woman, great is your faith. Your, woman is, your daughter is healed. You can go home. Here's what it says to me. There is an invitation in this. There is an example in this woman's faith. I think there's so much going on in this story. I think Jesus is intending to expose prejudice and racism. I think Jesus is intending to expose sexism. I think Jesus is in this moment doing all the things that he has done elsewhere. But I don't think that's all he's doing. Because in addition to those things, Jesus is also showing us that in this woman lives a kind of redemptive, healing, powerful faith. So yes, we have to examine the prejudice. Yes, we have to look at it. Yes, we have to think about gender equality. The gospel came to do all of those things, y'all. It did. To tear down the dividing walls of hostility that exist between us, to reconcile us to God and to each other. That is the gospel. To create one new humanity out of two. This is the work of Jesus. It's who he is and what he does. But it's not only those things. It's because those things come as the fruit of this faith in Jesus that when we will choose in our hurt and in our desperation to move towards him, to believe that in him there is a better way of life, that he has in himself something better than the patterns of this world than what the world has taught us, when I choose to believe it, to reach out and take it, healing comes as a result. New life comes as a result. That's the story. This woman's daughter is healed as a result of her faith. Healing comes to her. What might that say to us? I wonder if there isn't a word in this for us, church, which is that if this woman had chosen to walk away from Jesus, she would have left her child to the torments of death and demons. But instead, she chooses the way of faith to step towards Jesus, and as a result, freedom and healing come to her child to this next generation. So I wonder if in turn, if my sons are going to get to see their mother choose faith 
over the patterns and the ways of this world? Will our sons and our daughters see us choose faith over, for example, our politics? Will our sons and daughters see us choose our faith over our privilege? Will our sons and our daughters see us get to choose to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, not out of fear? And the kind of faith that we can control and manipulate and make it serve our ends, myself. Will they see that in me? Because maybe there's a, a promise that if we will choose to walk in the way of Jesus, to choose the way of the cross, that that is how healing, redemption, and faith come to our kids. Not just our biological kids, our spiritual children to the next generation of the church. Can y'all hear me? She could have chosen allegiance to her party. She could have chosen allegiance to her worldview, her tribe, her people, her way of thinking, her own interests. But the gospel called her out into something new, something risky, something different, something unforeseen, that I believe that gospel, that same gospel is yours in Jesus' name. That same spirit is yours in Jesus' name. Mine in Jesus' name. I will not leave my sons to wrestle death and demons on their own because I did not choose to walk by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Y'all, I... The things that keep our kids bound, and not just our biological children, the people in this world for whom we are called to tend to minister and save, the things that keep them bound up, your politics are not strong enough to liberate them from. You're not. Your podcasts are not strong enough to liberate us and set us free. They're not. However good you think you are or the good rules you keep, it's not powerful enough. It's not. It has to be by our faith in this gospel, our faith in Jesus Christ that sets us free, that heals us to be the church, that heals us to live and walk by faith and faith alone. This last 18 months, if this has not been a time of testing, a gap that has opened up to test where our loyalties lie, where our allegiances are, I don't know what one might look like. So we get to choose. Lord, we see it, we feel you, we know you are at work, and we are gonna choose because we are people who are called by your name to walk by faith by the love, the peace, the goodness that is in your gospel. And we're going to have to step out a little bit to do that. But what else is there, y'all? What else is there? And isn't that the point of the story? There is no life anywhere else. It's here. 
and it's yours. All you have to do is step out and take it. I don't know what it will look like for you. I don't pretend to know what it will look like for me exactly. But I look at this woman, this missionary to Gentiles, who had to decide after she watched Jesus liberate and heal her daughter, had to go home to Gentile Tyre and say, I don't know what it means, but that Jew saved my kid. I don't know how to explain it, but I am a changed woman. And he is my brother and my Lord because of this faith that unites us together. And it's because she did that that you are here and I am here. One new humanity out of the two. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And the world will never stop fighting against it until Jesus comes. But your promise is this. The gates of hell will not prevail against the faith that lives in you and us. Not against this church or your faith or his church. We just gotta start believing it and living like it's true. That's the only question in front of us. Amen. Let's stand together if we can.